on last week that I'm really excited about. It's entitled Thrive. Say that with me if you don't mind. Thrive. God has called us to the most extenuating circumstances in our dire need with the greatest challenges that we will ever face in life, not only as Christians, but as the Christian church to thrive. The church of God historically has always flourished as a result of persecution, even in the midst of confusion. We will face challenges, great obstacles in this lifetime. Reminds me of a story of a captain and three of his sailors. They were on a sinking ship. And as the ship was rapidly sinking, the captain said to the three sailors, we have a life raft, but it's only designed for three people and there are four of us. And he says to his sailors, forget all that stuff you've heard about the captain must go down with the ship because that ain't happening today. I'm getting on this life raft, which means that one of you are not getting on this life raft. So he says to determine who's going to get on this life raft with me out of the three of you, I'm going to pose a question to each of you. So he looked at the first sailor and he said to him, What is the name of the unsinkable ship that went down when it hit an iceberg? The sailor said it was the Titanic. He said, good, get in the life raft. He looked at the second sailor and he said, and how many souls were lost at the sinking of that ship, the Titanic? He looked at him and he said, Captain, he says, 1,517, sir. He says, that's the correct answer. Now, You get in the life raft. He looked at the last man and said to him, and what were the names of all of those who perished? (laughs) Have you ever felt like life poses questions that you don't have answers for? That life seems like it's just unfair. We come to that place. Why me, O Lord? In this series entitled Thrive Again, I want to remind the children of God That you weren't designed by God just to survive, but to thrive, even in the most adverse of circumstances. The first part, and last week and this week and uh, the next week I'm here, I want to cover the challenges that every church will face. The challenges that we're facing even today. Last week I talked about two of the greatest challenges that the church is faced with, and that is, number one, in a postmodern age, we are faced with the absence of absolute truth. And it's not just the way the world or the culture thinks that there is no absolute truth. But now that has made its way into the thinking of the church and in the Christian community, and now we're either challenging or ignoring the word of God We have a cut and paste system that we want to cut out and paste what we want from the word of God to suit our fancy or to make it palatable for our digestive systems. There is an absolute truth and it is not just God telling us the truth, but God is the truth. God is truth revealed in Jesus Christ. The second challenge I talked about last week is a challenge against the glory of God. 
challenged against absolute truth. And then as a result of that, when truth is absent, then we have a distorted record of who God really is in his majesty and his beauty and in his sovereignty. And therefore, the glory of God is not just diminished or absent in the world from a cognizant perspective, but it is absent now in the worship of even believers. It's really about man's glory. It's about our church's glory and not the glory and the honor and the majesty of God. This week, I want to talk about on today two other great challenges that we're faced with. The church, every local church, are faced with these challenges. And they are huge challenges. But in the midst of discussing these challenges and identifying what they are, I believe God has called us also to go to his word to find out how do we thrive, not just survive, in the midst of these challenges. So the third challenge that the church has to address and that we're constantly faced with is this, the challenge of individualism. Individualism. We live in a culture and a society where it's all about me. We are so self-centered that it is not about others. It's not about the great commandment, loving God with our all and loving our neighbor as our self. And that mentality has made its way into the church. It's incredible that we've put men on the moon and we send people into outer space and yet we don't even speak to our next door neighbors. We're individualistic. We don't even pick up the phone and call and talk to anyone anymore. We text them and send emojis to let them know how we're feeling. Even in the church, we come in and we go out without building healthy relationships in God's idea of community. Yet I see that these challenges, they pose a huge problem. And I'm going to go ahead and just say, this is not going to be a comfortable sermon today, but it will be a life-changing sermon if you allow it to be. The reason why there's empty seats in this church today, and there's empty seats all around in our local churches is because of individualism. I'm here for my blessing. I'm here to get my praise on. I'm here for my relationship with God or my personal relationship with God But I'm not as concerned about others as I am about myself. As long as I can make it in, as long as I can survive this week, then I'm good to go. That's a huge challenge. Yet we realize that is not the plan of God. So I want to talk about real briefly before I get to this next section. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on either of them, but uh, either of them. But I want to say that. These challenges that the church must face with, they cause grave danger to the church. Here's the first danger that I see as a result of individualism. Number one, individualism, it defines God's idea for community. Everything that God has created in creation, he created it in community. The concept, the the idea of community. All throughout creation, let trees have community with one another and let them bear fruit of its kind. Every animal of its kind, every bird of its kind has, they're in community, every fish of the sea with those other fish of its kind. 
Every animal that creeps, every animal that walks of its kind. And then when he created man, Adam, mankind, God now, if you will, speaks his first words, if I can use this term generally or loosely speaking, of uh, unpleasantries when he says that it is not good that man should be alone. Better translation is mankind. It's not the idea that God wants every single person to be married. But he certainly intends that people are not isolated from other people or those of their kind. And now we have severe isolation even in the church. We come in 10 minutes late, leave 10 minutes early because I don't want to be with people of my kind. I love God the Father, but I can't stand his other children. That's the way my mama would say it. But yet we're like porcupines on a cold day. We need each other to survive, but we stick each other sometimes in the process. But it's an inescapable reality that when we start thinking individualistically and I don't need anyone else, then we're redefining God's idea of relationships and community. I got news for you. When Christ went to the cross, Jesus is very clear in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the cosmos, God so loved the world. In other words, Jesus didn't die just for each individual, he died for the world. And that's the reason why John can see before the throne of God in the heavenlies that there were people gathered around the throne worshiping Christ from every ethos, from every ethnicity. People, listen, because someone didn't think individualistically, but they took the word of God around the world. The second grave danger that we face with individualism, especially in the church, it's individualism, it diminishes evangelism and the need for missions. It diminishes evangelism and the need for missions and for the church to be missional. It's because after all, <laughs> I'm about my own salvation, about my own life. I want to make it to heaven. I want to be a Christian. I want to know Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And so therefore... What we're really saying is I'm not concerned about the person around us. And yet God has strategically decided in eternity past that he would design us. We would be reflections of who he is in his glory. Place us strategically in this time, in this place, with these parents, raised in this environment, in this community, that we might be, or Christ, the light of Christ in us. And we might reflect his glory, might reflect his light, might reflect be reflections of his love so that others might glorify God. As John Piper says that worship exists, uh, missions exist where worship does not exist. Missions exist for the purpose of worship. If we have the privilege of worshiping God and holding God in the highest esteem, glorifying and honoring God, and have received this soul satisfaction isn't that what you want for other people as well? You can't just say that I love God with my all and we don't not love our neighbor as ourselves. Because the true litmus test of how we love an invisible, intangible, and material God in the heavenlies is how we love our visible neighbor, even if they don't look like us or they're far from us. It's dangerous. Individualism is dangerous because it 
diminishes evangelism and missions. And that's the reason why many of our churches are not so concerned about those outside of the church. And here, body of Christ church is something that we emphasize over and over and over again, that we don't exist for ourselves. The reality is in these 28 years, I say this, the greatest sensitivity and compassion. I've been here those 28 years and I know those first seven people and then 12 people and then 31 people that were a part and have made great sacrifices for this community so that you can sit in these seats, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be used by God. They made those sacrifices because we wanted this church to be missional, to think outside of the box exponentially and how we can reach people outside of these walls. We will continue to go down that road and keep that focus. But it takes everybody getting involved and not thinking individualistically. You have to ask yourself the question, when was the last time I shared my life with someone and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with them? I'm not talking about that one time last year. When was the last time I brought somebody to church besides myself outside of family and friends day or a comedy show? Then we have to pause and say, how many unsaved people have I been praying for on a consistent basis? Maybe this would be some kind of uh, monitor of just really or not whether or not we're individualistic and that is the way we think it's all about me and I'm self-centered. Or I really am concerned about others because God is concerned about them. Thirdly, individualism, it delimits discipleship. Ultimately, God didn't call us just to go to the world and evangelize, but to make disciples and certainly within the Christian community. But if we're not in Christian community, how do we make disciples? And if we haven't submitted ourselves within the family of God to one another, how can we disciple one another? And how can we be disciples, become disciples, followers of Christ? That's the reason why the word of God and the apostles, Peter and Paul, they 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 say explicitly that the, the old should disciple, if you will, or become mentors to the young. If we don't read our Bibles and study our Bibles and attend Bible studies or in small group sessions... How can we become disciples of Christ, followers of Christ? There's a huge difference in being a fan of Jesus and becoming a follower of Christ. There's a lot of fanfare on Sunday morning, but there's little discipleship and following Jesus throughout the week. (laughs) Fourthly, individualism, it it debilitates ministry. If you notice, I very strategically use the D for all of these. But individualism, it, it, it de- deliberate, uh, excuse me, uh, debilitates ministry. It handicaps our ability to serve others. There's a formula, a sad formula that's used in the church across America in particular. It's called the 80-20 uh, factor. 20% of the people are those in the church serving And 80% of the people who are, they don't serve, but they enjoy the benefits of those who do serve. Something's really twisted about that number. The 80-20 factor. 
In other words, 20% of the people cook the food and bring it to the church cookout, and 80% of the people uh, eat up all the food, didn't bring anything except empty Cool Whip containers to take food home. Why is there an 80-20 factor? We could switch those numbers around easily or go 100%, but I understand this. Some people, when we come into the church or even in the church, we have seasons in our lives where we have been crippled to a certain degree emotionally, maybe spiritually or relationally. And so we're broken, we're wounded, we need a season to heal, and we need others to serve us until we can get back on our feet. There's that 20%. But it shouldn't be the other way around. 20% of those people that are serving are being crippled. Because they're constantly on their feet and they're constantly up and they're serving everybody else. And everybody else is just taking them and taking your spiritual giftedness and your call to ministry extremely lightly. And I'm going to tell you the reason why. If I can just say it in a loving way, is because you really think that this life is all about you. Some sometimes people in the church say, well, I don't know how to get involved. You figured everything else out in life, I'm sure. You figured out how to get enrolled in school. You figured out how to send resumes to this job. You figured out how to get on a plane and go halfway across the world and get yourself back here again. I'm sure you can figure out how you can serve in ministry. Just ask somebody standing around serving. That's all. When I'm in a restaurant and I want something else to eat, I just find out who's serving the food. I don't have to be a master chef to get something else to eat. You find out who's serving. <laughs> and then fifth, lastly, but certainly not least, the summation of how individualism is a great, grave danger to the church. It defies the glory of God. <laughs> really saying God and his idea for community and his idea for relationships and us serving and us loving and us giving and us being missional and taking the gospel around the world and concerned about other folks' soul and pouring into one another, that it not only diminishes God's idea for, um, or redefines God's idea for community, but it really stains the glory of God from a human perspective from earth towards heaven. God loves the world. We can't think individually, but how do we turn this great challenge around? Just just one verse, just one passage from Scripture, I think is the key. There's many others, but I want to want to take the time and use it on some other things. But Hebrews ten twenty five. I'm going to step outside and use the contemporary English version uh, for this portion of Scripture. But here's the answer. This is how we go from surviving, if we're, if we're barely doing that in light of event, uh, um, uh, individualism, to becoming a thriving church, a thriving people in a thriving community, making maximum impact inside and outside of these walls. Hebrews 10, 25, the writer says, some people have gotten out of the habit of meeting for worship. They've gotten out of the habit of meeting for worship, but we must not do that. We should keep on encouraging one another, especially since you know that the day of the Lord, that the Lord's coming is getting closer. Now I'm going to deal with that challenge a couple of weeks from now, God's will. Because one of the greatest challenges we have, and I'll go ahead and give you the prelude, 
is we don't believe that Jesus is coming back. We bought into that lie that Jesus is not coming back. You say, well, he's been saying he's coming back for ages. And I'm going to tell you, like I heard an old deacon say it years ago, one thing about it. He's a whole lot closer today than he was yesterday. And here's the reality. He is coming back. I'm thoroughly convinced of that. And we need to live our lives in light of his return. But every time I pick up the paper, and I've got friends that are in the funeral business, and when I talk to them almost every week, I'm asking, how is business? And they remind me that he came back for this one on Tuesday, and he came back for two on Wednesday, and I got three on Thursday. And I got four funerals between Saturday and Sunday. Here's the reason why, because he's coming back for somebody every day. When I, when I was growing up, everybody went to church. Didn't mean everybody was saved. Everybody went to church. If you didn't go to church, especially in the African American community, I grew up in the hood in Detroit. You needed to know Jesus. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I just saying that sometimes fear will drive you to your knees so that you'll trust in God. But, 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 I think a lot of people went not necessarily because their focus and aim was always Christ. But they knew and they couldn't wait for Sunday morning to become because they knew that was community. <laughs> we've been working all week long. We've been separated from each other. But everybody's going to get together on Sundays. And then we stay in church. You know, I always say when church I grew up in, you started Sunday school at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. We didn't get out of church to midnight on Wednesday. Because that's what you did. You went to Sunday school, then you had morning service. Pastor said, y'all need to stay. We got some fried chicken, some collard greens, macaroni and cheese cooking. And Hoop and Holler Baptist, they're coming in at 3 o'clock for our anniversary and for fellowship. And then I need you back here for Baptist Training Union at 6.30. And then we got Sunday evening service. And we're back. And I'm just, so mama said, we ain't going nowhere. Might as well just stay here. And you bring a pillow and some snacks and some sandwiches. <laughs> and you stay there. Why? It's because we didn't have a thousand and one channels to go home and watch. There were three channels, and the people that operated those three channels on Sunday morning, they were in church somewhere. <laughs> so the programming wasn't even good. Stores were closed, period, on Sundays. Restaurants, then they got this idea, well, we'll open up at 1. Then they backed it up at 12. Now stores and malls are open at 6 a.m. in the morning if you want to go and walk. We've lost our sense of community. Individualism is it's a great challenge. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? Secondly, <clears throat> can I have five minutes? Who's willing to give me five minutes? Please raise your hand. It's five, ten. Anybody else? Fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, thirty, thirty-five, forty. I'll be here all day, man. Go get me a sandwich. Yeah. Wednesday night. Yeah, there you go. Won't be here that long. Listen to me carefully. The second, actually for today, but the fourth greatest challenge I want to address in this series that every local church is faced with, especially in America, but now around the world. Listen to me carefully. Don't miss this. It is the denial and the absence of suffering and death 
in the Christian community. Now we are preaching and teaching a gospel, as Paul says, is really not a gospel at all. That Christians don't have to suffer. That's all you need is faith in God. If you got faith in God, not only do you not have to suffer, but you don't have to die. Let me say this with clarity so we'll understand it. In this life, in the Christian journey, you will either waste your life sitting on the sidelines of comfort. Or you will risk it all and lose your life for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. But there is no in-between ground. There is no neutral ground. We will either again sit on the sidelines, saving our life, yet wasting our lives for our mere comforts. Or we will choose to risk our life and give all to God for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. The reality is most of us want to play it safe in life. Not only do we want to play it safe, but we even pray safe. Most of our prayers are safe prayers about ourselves. There's nothing wrong with praying self prayers. But have you noticed how much of our prayer life is dedicated to safe prayers versus prayers of risk? Prayers of sacrifice. God, I'm going to put it all on the line. Because I want to glorify you not only in life, but even in death. We're all creatures of comfort. Look at this brother. I'm comfortable. We're all creatures of comfort. And this world knows that. And this world promotes our comfort. Be all you can be. Enjoy the luxuries in this lifetime. Enjoy it all. Because what you're really saying is when this life is over, that's it. So you might as well go for the gusto. We take risk every day for our own pleasures. We'll leave here and get in our automobiles and drive down dangerous roads. Get on planes and fly. We'll swim in oceans that we don't even know what's in those oceans. We will leave here and go eat food that we don't know have been contaminated or not. Shake hands with people and we don't know what they carry. We're willing to take risk if it's for our own gain, our own comfort, and our own pleasures. We will invest money into stuff that we think will make us more money for our own pleasure. But we won't invest it in the kingdom and it's all his. Because we bought into the message that as a Christian, I'm not supposed to suffer. That simply because I am a Christian, I'm exempt from suffering. I'm exempt from trials. I'm exempt from affliction. So now that's all preachers want to preach about is messages about how to deal with your haters. Yet Jesus says you will be hated for my sake. But yet what we tell people is. That's all you got to do is plead the blood and your haters got to flee. And Jesus says, why would they flee if I'm the one who's sending them directly to you? So we love our comfort, but yet in the same token, Jesus nor his disciples. Nor the first century church, second, third century, fourth century Christians did they? That's OK. I feel the same way. Bore myself sometimes. It's like when this thing will ever get over. They didn't live a safe and comfortable life. Now, I'm not saying by no means that we cannot 
enjoy the comforts of life. The problem is not when we have comforts in life, but what's hard to recognize and is very deceiving is when the comforts of life have us. It is a reality. Sickness and disease and suffering and pain and war and conflict and disasters. They're all the results and consequences of original sin, that of Adam in the Garden of Eden. That's what the Word of God tells us. And none of us are exempt from that. God hasn't reversed that. We will all experience that in this lifetime. I don't care how much faith you got, you can't faith it away. Because then God would not be a just God. Romans 5 and 12, Paul made it clear, therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin and the whole package associated with death. And thus death, it spread to all men. And some of you are sitting here thinking, Adam jacked it up for me and for everybody else. But he says, because all sin. Romans 8 and 20, Paul says, for the creation, not just human beings, but all of creation. Was subjected to futility, not willingly. It's not what creation wanted, but because of him, God, who subjected it. But he subjected it in hope. Earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, whirlwinds, raging fires that destroys homes and lives, mudslides, natural disaster. That's creation groaning, crying out to God because God subjected it to futility. But why? One, Because of the consequences of sin and to remind all of us of the consequences of original sin. And then number two, that he would give us hope in the midst of our calamities. Now here's the interesting thing. The world doesn't recognize and know about this hope. This this hope has been concealed in the church and God's desire is that the church would take this hope to a world outside of these walls. Who's turning to political figures to save them and give them hope. Who's turning to a worldly system to save them and give them hope. I don't care if it's Democrat, Republican, Independent. We rely too much on the elected officials to do only what God has designed the church to do. Christians are not exempt for the consequences of original sin. Romans 8.23, Paul makes it clear. He says, not only that, but we also, not only all creation, but we also, not just the unsaved, but we also, he's speaking to the Christian community, we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we are the first fruit. It's an Old Testament metaphor, picture, if you will, analogy. Of when the farmer would raise agriculturists, say grapes, the first fruit, they would offer it up to God. It's not only the first to recognize his preeminence, but it's the sweetest, it's the juiciest. But it's a reminder that there's more to come. Believers, we are the first fruit of the Spirit. But this is not it. I don't care if you live to be 969 years of age like Methuselah, this is not it. This is just a deposit. 
the earnest. Even we ourselves groan within. Anybody groan lately? I'm going to say it again. Anybody groaned lately? I groaned just this morning. I didn't want to get up. I remember when I was 20, 21 years old. It was time to get up. Man, I just, I would pop straight up out the bed. Carlton, I, man, I just poop, poop. I'm on my feet. Poop, let's go. Let's do this thing. Now when it's time to get up at 60, I had to lay there for a minute. Am I alive or am I dead? I had to ease the left leg out of the bed and then use my hands to assist the right leg, hold on to the covers and set up so the blood can start circulating to my head before I stand up, get dizzy and fall out. Then walk it in the dark of the morning. I have to talk to my knees. Be faithful. <laughs> Don't let a brother down. Come on, son. Bend, bend, bend. And I forget. I forget. I'm 60 years old. Y'all listen to me carefully. I don't know where the time went. It felt like just last week I was 21. I forget. I still go to the gym. I still exercise on the record. But I forget. (laughs) I'm in the bathroom last week trying to stand up and put my sock on. How many of y'all know when you get like this? And once you start going over, the best thing you can do is just go on and fall because you're really going to hurt yourself and everybody around you. You're going to bust some stuff up for real. We do more damage trying to save our lives than just, just hit the ground, go and get that knot and get it over with. <laughs> I was like a pretzel. <laughs> all of these aches, all of these pains, and if you don't have them now, you will. I see folk out here wearing prescription glasses. It's just a matter of time. We're going to all be blind. And I know y'all got them contacts on. You're looking all pretty. Got your little mink lashes on. Mm-mm. You can look at me. I used to have eyebrows. When I was younger, people complimented me. They said, you got the longest lashes. I have three lashes on each eye now. <laughs> it's just a reminder. I am one step away from that long dirt nap. And I'm cool with that. I really am. If this is my last sermon, I'm cool with that. I really am. I'm not just saying it. I ain't trying to be superficial, super spiritual. I'm good. But he says we are eagerly waiting for the adoption and redemption of our body. We realize positionally believer is in Christ, but there's something else We're waiting for the adoption of our bodies. I'm waiting for resurrection, but there can be no resurrection, not unless there's death. And chances are there's not going to be death, not unless there's suffering that precedes that death. And then he says in verse 24, listen, we're saved in this hope. We're saved in the midst of this groaning, in the midst of pain, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of death. But hope that is seen is not seen. For why does one hope for what he sees or what you can see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait 
for it with perseverance, which means this. It may not happen in this lifetime. Overall, it will not happen in this lifetime. I'm going to give you some words of comfort. I'm going to relieve you and I'm going to say this as sympathetically and empathetically as I possibly can. There are some pains, some sorrows that you have in this lifetime that will not be healed in this lifetime. God will give you strength to go through it. But there are some pains, some sorrows, and some mourning that takes place in this lifetime that you cannot faith it away. You cannot pray it away. You cannot speak it away. You can't plead the blood of Jesus against it. God will give you joy. He will give you strength in the midst of it. And it seems like an oxymoron. But while you're mourning over a death, he will put a smile on your face. Because of joy on the inside. But we have hope. And it ain't a hope like sometimes we want to tell people and and counseling people, especially through grief. And listen, some people say, well, I've been, been mourning for the last year. I've been mourning for two years. When will this end? And I say, it will get better. But there's a great possibility it will never go away. Listen, my mom and my dad are both gone. My mother-in-law made her transition last year. And I got news for you. I hope I never get over their death down here. I hope I never experience a life without sorrow because of their death. Because it keeps me longing in hope to see them again. If I get to a place where I'm I'm cool, I feel no pain, no sorrow, I'll forget just how important they really are to me and how gracious God was to loan them to me in my lifetime. If you lose a million dollars today and a million dollars was all you ever had, you can't just say, God, let me walk away from this and I ain't got, you know, I feel good. Listen, it's supposed to hurt because it was a million dollars. How much more precious is human life? We're saved in this hope. Let me tell you this. You say, man, I ain't heard nothing comforting yet. We're getting to that. As a Christian, you will suffer more than anyone in this world will ever suffer. As you follow Christ, you will suffer more, not less, than anyone in this world will ever suffer. In Acts 14, 22, the word of God says, in the encouragement and instruction he gives, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Why strengthen the souls of the disciples? Exhorting them to continue in the faith. Why should we encourage, challenge, and exhort them to continue in the faith? Because there's a possibility that they might withdraw. Why? And saying we must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. We're not supposed and it's not designed that we enter into the kingdom of God. Without affliction, without trials, without persecution. Matter of fact, the psalmist wrote in the Old Testament, Psalms 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions. Everybody experiences the, the pain, if you will, and the sorrow. And we are affected by original sin. But many are the afflictions of the righteous. Simply because we are living righteously. When something is going wrong in your life and it seems like your world is turned upside down. Yes, maybe we do need to put our lives in check because God might be chastening us. But most of the time, it's because we're right where God wants us to be. 
Jesus even said in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. None of us are exempt from it. Suffering as a Christian, it doesn't mean that you don't have faith in God. As a reality, and a matter of fact, it means that you do have faith in God. Job is a wonderful example of that. Job went through what he went through not because he didn't have faith in God, but because he did have rock-solid faith in God. That's the reason why God could say to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Now, let me give you his resume. He is perfect and he's upright. He is a man who eschews evil and he does good. There's none like him in the earth. The reason why God chose Job for the challenge is because he knew of Job's faith in him before the challenge and that Job would trust him in the challenge and Job was the only one who could handle that kind of challenge. I hate when people say, Pastor, I'm going through just like Job. No, you ain't. Now you ain't. I can speak for myself. I don't have the faith of Job. That's why God has not tried me on that level. The reality is it takes genuine faith to trust in God, in his sovereignty, going through your difficulties, than it does to trust God to go around your difficulties. In other words, genuine faith is not seen in God trying to get around and skirt around the difficulties of life, but trusting God to go through them and know that God has got a plan and a purpose. Let me go ahead and say it this way. There's a lot of stuff that we hear in the church today is not biblical at all. Matter of fact, a lot of it is taken outside of the Christian world and the dynamics of the scriptures. We got in the word of faith movement, this thought, and it, it, it's not just in the word of faith churches. This is the Baptist church, the Methodist church, the Presbyterian, all around the world. Some of, some of those have done the greatest evangelism in the world is not the Baptist, not the Southern Baptist, but excuse me, missions in the world, according to the records, has been the Pentecostals. They have taken the, the gospel into places, but and I'm not putting all Pentecostals in the same category. But many of the Pentecostal, in the Pentecostal circles, there is that element of this so-called faith idea and that we can just speak things into existence. Really, the root of it is not scripture, it's metaphysics. It's mind over matter. If you can believe it, you can have it. If you just say it and believe it, that's called faith and speaking it into existence, then it's yours. Just name it, claim it. Blab it, grab it, believe it, receive it. It's not scripture. But yet what preachers have a tendency to do is attach a portion of scripture out of context to those philosophies. For instance, Proverbs, can I give you something we're familiar with? Proverbs 18, 21, so you can stop saying it when you go up to the car lot when you leave here. The power of life and death are in the tongue. So all you got to do is speak life, speak death. You, you can say all day long, no, I'm not, no, uh, 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 I'm not claiming this. Make it different, you claim it or not. People say I'm not claiming a sickness, but if 
someone shot you in the chest, you can't look down and say, I ain't claiming that bullet. The devil is a lie. (laughs) And you can't speak the bullet out of your chest. The power of life and death are in the tongue. (laughs) Well, first of all, I don't have time to go through all the Hebrew, but in the original language, but the word tongue simply means it's synonymous with, with words. The power of life and death are in the words that we speak. But when we look at this, this passage in no ways, and it's original, and it's historical, and it's linguistical, and it's uh, literal context implies or even slightly suggests then or even now that we have the ability simply to speak things into existence or to will things into existence. That would be so nice. I'll speak that lottery number into existence right now. And y'all know I'm a servant of God. I don't play the lottery, but I'll send both of my sons to the store for me. (laughs) All four of my sons, actually. But But this is what it does imply. It's not literal that the power of life and death are in the tongue. But it's words that we speak either give life into others, that's the context, or they could bring about death. For instance, a judge in a courtroom rendering a decision, innocent or guilty. You could say that you have life in prison or state of execution, that's death. Or you could say that I find no reason to condemn this person and liberate you and set you free, that's life. A doctor can either speak life or death. A doctor can say as a result of looking at the diagnosis and all the test results, we're going to prescribe this regimen of medical treatment and i.e. you have life. Or that doctor can come out of that operating room and hold that family's hand and comfort them and said, we've done all that we can do. And chances are you got about another hour to make it so you might want to go in and Spend your last moments with them. I understand God is ultimately in the control, but you speak life and you speak death. It's not because the doctor spoke negatively. It's not negative. I've had people in these 28 years that say, hey, well, shoot. hey, make sure the pastor don't come down because I need somebody there to know the prayer of faith. Listen. <laughs> well, maybe you might not want to invite me down to pray because my prayer is this, simply put. God, my desire, and I can't lie to you, this family member's desire is that you would raise this sick person up to life, that you would restore them, mind, body, and soul, give them complete strength, that they might leave, be a testimony and a witness on this side for you, that they may draw others to your glory and glorify you for your work. But God, nevertheless, not Calvin's will, but your will be done. And if that is not your will, can you give us grace to get through this? So it's not only a far-fetched translation and interpretation, but it's also, let me say this, it's insulting, degrading, and disgraceful to the sovereignty of God if we suggest that we can just speak or will things into existence with our words. You say, well, that's what God did in creation. He just spoke things into existence. But you ain't God. You ain't God. Tap your neighbor and say, you ain't God. 
man of God. Man, if that was true, I'd be up there, that Bentley dealer right there on Capitol Boulevard right now. Speaking that thing into existence. But the Lord knows I ain't even got gas money for a Bentley. Because here's the reality. God is sovereign, not man. Proverbs 19.21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Many plans. I got some. You got some too, right? Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Whatever God decides, that's what's going to ultimately stand. James said it this way in James 4, 13 to 16 in the New Testament. He says, come now, you who say. That's all of us knuckleheads, all right? Always saying stuff. And this is what people were saying. Hey, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such and into that city. And we're going to spend a year there. We're going to buy and sell. And we're going to make money, money, and more money. And James says this. Forget about making money. Let me, let me make this statement, he says. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. You're talking about business and how much money you're going to make next year. You don't even know if you're going to be alive on this side tomorrow. And he asked this question for what is your life? What he's really saying is, you mean to tell me that you can just take your own life in your own hand and make decisions and will things into existence? Our life is just a vapor, he says, and for a little while then it vanishes away, this physical life. Instead, this is what we really need to say and mean it, if the Lord wills. (laughs) See, the old folk used to say that. They used to add stuff like, and if the creek don't rise. If the creek started rising in Detroit, I was in bad shape, all right? All that sewage. And if the creek don't rise, if the Lord will, then we shall live and do this or that. That's what we say. If it's his desire, if it's will, if it's plan, this is what my I would like to happen. But then he says, here's the real heart of the matter. Here's the real problem. But now you boast in your arrogance. It's really arrogant to say that I'm going to speak this into the existence. Here's my plans and this is what I'm going to make happen. All such boasting, he says, is evil. It's not just an abnormality. It is evil. The psalmist in Psalms 115.3 says, Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Doesn't make any difference what our decision might be. You might have a hard time swallowing this, but this is what God says in his word. In Deuteronomy 32 and verse 29 God says, now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there anyone who can deliver out of my hand. In other words, once I decide I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And you can't faith my decision away. First Samuel 2 and 6 The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and then he resurrects or he brings up. And then we sing all kinds of songs that are not biblical at all. I listened to one the other day. I mean, it's my Jimmy Jam too. And I ain't going to mention the artist's name. But man, that bass line in that song is rocking. And I start listening to the lyrics in light of the word of God that I'm preparing to preach on this Sunday. It's developing that biblical worldview. 
processing everything through the lenses of scripture, even Christian music. And the song says we're blessed in the city and we're blessed in the field. I say we sure is. We're blessed when we come and when we go. And then it got to this line and we cast down every stronghold. Sickness and poverty must cease for the devil is defeated and we're blessed. Sickness and poverty must cease. But here's the problem I find. If it was true, that's all we had to do is speak it down, plead the blood over it. What we're doing wrong, if that was true. You notice we only speak the blood and we only cast down Satan when it comes to our sickness and poverty. If that be the case, why are we not on a plane going somewhere where there's genuine sickness and poverty and there's no HMOs, there's no Blue Cross and there's no Blue Shield, there's there's no Affordable Health Care Act. There's no clean drinking water. There's no access to penicillin there's, there's, or antibiotics. Why don't we go over there and plead the blood and make claims for their healing and for their wholeness and for their poverty when two-thirds of the world live in impoverished conditions? But it's easy to sit here in the Western Hemisphere in the church and claim this and claim that. That's because you got a good job. you got a degrees on your wall. you got health care. And heard another young lady sing a song. The song lyric says, the enemy came up against your health. The enemy came up against your finances. I say, sure did. The enemy came up against your vision. Yeah, absolutely. He came up against your business. How are you speaking the truth? You will win. You will win, she says. And I said, yes, I will. And then she said, everything attached to me wins. I said, everything? I definitely need to go get me some lottery tickets and stick them on my clothes of everything attached to me. Bro, you need to start hanging out with me because everything attached to me, it wins. Then she said, speak and declare it over your finances and over your health. Speak and declare it. I wish it was that easy, church. And I'm going to tell you, the only ones who profit and say that their prophets from that message are the prophets who speak it and it's only for their own profit. Because you got folk in the church that can't even pay their light bill. That this man is standing in the pulpit bragging about how much he spends on his clothes, on his socks, how much he's going to spend when he goes out to dinner and bragging about his vacations and the square footage of his house and you live on the other side of the track and you're feeding into what he calls faith for your blessing, and God never asks you to pay for it. I know they're liberating somebody. They're like, I sure wish I'd known it before I gave my offering. <laughs> Speak and declare it. <laughs> you say, well, but the Bible says that we can do that. Where? Where? Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we're healed. By his stripes we're healed and I'm claiming my healing. But you got to ask, what was the sickness we were healed from? Here's the context, context clues. 
Christ was wounded for our transgressions. That sin. He was bruised, took the beating that we should, scourging that we deserve for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace. Let me tell you, the greatest thing we've got going against us is not our sickness, it's not our disease, it's not our haters, it is not the lack of our finances, it is not the troubles in this world. The greatest thing we've got going against us is the wrath of God. You don't have to be a believer to get rich. You don't have to even be a believer to get well. But you have to trust in God by faith that God will remove his wrath from us. Because of our sin and wickedness that Christ himself went to the cross and bore the, our penalty. And the consequences of our sin. And so he says, even in 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we having died to sin might live for righteousness whose stripes you were healed. Die to sin that we might have the ability to live righteously or in righteousness. He didn't die for our cancer, for our sickness, for our employment, for our careers. He died for our sins. Now there is a promise in the future that he will wipe away all of our tears and all of our sorrow. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more strife. No more wars and no more death. But that's the future. And what we really have is an eschatology that is on amphetamine sulfate. Street name speed. In other words, what we're doing is we got our timelines mixed up. Sometimes we read the Bible and we look at promises of God in the Bible that may not, i.e., either pertain directly to us as Abraham and his descendants specifically, or it pertains to the believers, the bride of Christ, but not just yet. It's a future blessing. It's a future grace. When we teach and believe that this all you need is faith and you'll be exempt from pain and sorrows and sickness and persecution and death. What we're really saying is God is really not sovereign. He really doesn't have a plan and a purpose. And that everything that happened is just willy nilly or we give more credit to the devil than he rightly deserves. Not only that, but we put our confidence in our faith. So what we have is faith in our faith and not our trust in a sovereign God. So therefore, our faith becomes the object of our faith. And so it's no longer thy will be done, thy kingdom come, but it's my will be done. And what I'm expecting you to do is to endorse my will. God has designed suffering and persecution and affliction for his own purpose and for his own gain. But let me tell you, this is for our growth as well and for our maturity. A calm sea doesn't produce skilled sailors, church. It's when we learn how to maneuver and navigate through the storms of life while trusting Jesus Christ, then we'll not only be able to survive, but we'll learn how to walk on water in the process. You'll never grow and mature, not unless our faith is challenged. Our relationship with God will never be fortified until we go through the stormy seas of life. 
Matter of fact, Paul, uh, Paul said it this way when he writes his letter to the Philippians while he's incarcerated in a Roman jail or house arrest and he's fastened to this centurion and this Roman soldier. In, in Philippians 1, 12, he's in prison but trying to give those on the outside encouragement as they go through their suffering and persecution. And this is what he says. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. My imprisonment is actually designed by God for the advancement of the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. No doubt, soldiers are being saved because they're being fastened to the Apostle Paul. And it's because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become, listen to this, confident in the Lord because they see me in prison as a leader going through and the advancement of the, 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 the work of God, they have now become confident and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Author Frank Page writes in an article, I think it was World Magazine, He's talking about an interview that was wrapping up with a reporter. He asked a prominent leader in a rapidly expanding Chinese house church movement how Americans should continue to pray for believers in China. And this is what the Chinese leader said, Christian leader. And I quote, stop praying for persecution in China to end. He said, "Is for for it is through persecution that the church has grown." Yes. Then he goes on even further, talking about this astounding faith, and he says, "In fact, we are praying that the American church might taste the same persecution, so revival will come to the American church, like we have seen in China." If only the church will learn how to suffer and suffer well. If only the church would. We'll get out of our comfort zone and take great risks for God and the advancement of his kingdom. If only we wouldn't be afraid of loss. Paul said, I consider everything lost in light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I consider everything that I lost gained because of him. If only the church and every born again believer would stand on the threshold of death for great exploits, for the glory and honor of God, nothing could stop us. There's no devil in hell that could stop us or block us. There would be nothing that we couldn't accomplish if we would just get out of our comfort zone, trust God, walk by faith and not by sight. The church would thrive. Not just survive, but we would thrive. People would knock the doors down to get in to see what it is that's so different about us. And it's not just because we got tattoos like the world has, and yet we are Christians, but we live a life in such a way that it make our tattoo artists wonder what makes them tick. Jesus says, anybody's going to come after me, they got to pick up the cross and follow me. They got to deny themselves and he says this if you really want to figure out what true life is then you got to lose your life and I'll tell you that's my translation for whoever desires to save his life will lose it but whoever loses it for my sake you'll find it then you'll know what true living and true life then we can come to the same conclusion Paul came to for me to live as Christ great mathematical equation 
but to live is gain or to die is gain. When God's reputation and glory is on the line, when the soul and the good of others are worth taking the risk, then we can have the same testimony as Esther the Queen. If I perish, then let me perish. If I perish, then let me perish. But I'm going to risk it all for God. But here's the day and time that we live in, just like in the first century, Jesus and his disciples. And for real, I am closing. Matthew 26, in the night of Jesus' betrayal, Jesus said to his disciples, you will all fall away because of me. Because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. When bad things happen, when disappointing times are upon us, don't fall back. Don't scatter. Look at that as a great opportunity and open door for God to do something tremendous and miraculous. You can't have a miracle until you come to a place where there's nothing else we can do. Then we see God at work. When the storms and the hurricanes of life are well beyond our control, that's when we learn and we turn to God because we understand that he has absolute control over everything. Hudson Taylor, the great man of faith who founded the Chinese Inland Mission, he integrated faith and risk together in this statement that has now become famous in certain mission circles. And he says, and I quote, unless there's an element of risk in our exploits for God, there's no need for faith. And not unless we're willing to take great risk for the exploits of God, there's no need for faith and trust in God. <laughs> Let me say this in closing. Church, I don't stand up here on Sundays to try to preach to you and teach you how you can go around or over your problems. I'm not standing here to, to tell you how you can avoid affliction, your sickness, your trials, your persecution, or your death. The reason why I believe God has called me to this office and he's anointed me for this role and appointed me for this role is so that whatever your season of difficulty might look like, that God will give you grace to go through it and even in death, you might glorify him in it. So, here's the hope. Understand that wherever you are, whatever is going on in your life, God's got his hands all in it. (laughs) And nothing but greatness is going to come out of it when we trust him. It may not appear that way right now. But he's given us hope. Years ago, I was in Ghana, West Africa, and going there year after year. And uh, every now and then, there's <laughs> there's someone that finds something really fascinating, and it, it is in one sense, uh, especially to them. And you know, they want to take me to walk down this great hill to see this waterfall they kept bragging about, and that's all I saw was just a stream of water coming over these rocks. And I was like, boy, if they saw Niagara Falls, they'd pass out. When these boys took me to back of this village, I mean, Doc, we were going through, I mean, I'm swatting everything, you know, to get back there. They want to show me this banana tree that has split in the middle of the bark. 
and they treated it as like the eighth wonder of the world. I was hungry. My thought was, can you at least get me a banana? Uh, not, not a banana tree, but a coconut uh, tree is what it was. And uh, But this one time, guys got excited and they said, come, you, you, you must see. And I go walking back in this village and there is an artisan. He's on the loom and he's weaving. Kentaclaw. And if you've ever seen him do this, it's amazing to see him on the loom and they take... It's like stick a piece of wood with a string on it and they, and they just slide it through and comes out on the other side and he was just about done. And I looked at it and they were just like, oh, oh, what do you think? What do you think? And I'm like, no, you want to be courteous? And I'm like, oh, it's nice. But what I saw was patterns and disarray. There really wasn't patterns in all colors that were bland. What I saw was these little fragments of string everywhere. And it wasn't really a beautiful piece of art at all. I I wouldn't purchase it. And then I waited about 15 more minutes and he took it off the loom and he flipped it over. (laughs) All the colors and the patterns and all of his hard work and effort that the master artists have been working on that was upside down, now is right side up. And I see the full picture. And it was absolutely amazing and incredibly beautiful. I want you to know that right now it seems like your world might be upside down. No distinct patterns. The colors of your life might seem bland. Seem like it might be fragmented like little pieces of string here and there. But God has given us this hope in Jesus Christ. That through faith (laughs) that he's coming back again. And he's going to turn it all around. And we live in that hope, live out of that hope and have joy in that hope. That what's going on right now is just God at work. And one day he's going to flip it over. For it does not yet appear what we shall be like. But when we see him, we will see him as he is and we shall be like him. That's what I'm looking forward to. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more Kelvin struggles. No more pain, no more sin, no more suffering, no more funerals to attend. But nothing but joy in the Holy Ghost. Gathered around the throne, worshiping God day and night. Church, that's what I'm yearning for. Let us pray. Father God, you are more than gracious. I pray if there's anyone here today that may not know Christ as their Savior, that today, oh Father, They would say, Lord, here I am. I give my life to you. God, I pray today, oh Father, for the pain, the sorrow, whatever anyone might be going through today, sickness in their body. Lord, I pray that you bring about healing. Pray that you bring about comfort. I pray, oh Father, that someone may not have a job. I pray, oh Father, that you will open up doors for employment, for opportunities pray, O oh Father, that your grace be bestowed upon them. Yet, God, I pray that you give us a boldness and a courage individually as a believer and as a church as a whole to take great and extraordinary risk to stand on the threshold of death even that you might be glorified 
that, O oh Father, we might give it all away for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Come on, let's magnify the Lord in this place. God bless you. Let us stand. I pray that you have been blessed and encouraged as well as challenged today. If you're visiting with us for the first time, please don't make this your last time. I promise I won't be as long. I'll shave at least three minutes off the sermon, all right? But God bless all South Carolina folk here today. Amen. God bless you. Coming all the way from out of town. Anybody else from out of town? Out of town? Out of, where, where are you from, if you don't mind? New York. All right. Great. Glad to have